If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. We can infer that she was a person of some principle, actually, who still had more, the moral courage to stand up for the things about which she really cared. And that meant challenging Henry VIII on two occasions. That was Alison Weir talking about Henry VIII's third wife, Jane Seymour. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with the best-selling historian and author Alison Weir, who's written several biographies of medieval and Tudor-era royals. Her latest venture is a six-part series of historical novels on Henry VIII's wives, the third of which, 
on Jane Seymour has very recently been published. And this was the subject of Alison's interview with our staff writer, Eddie Cawthorn. So on today's podcast, I'm be talking to the best-selling historical novelist, Alison Weir. Thanks for joining me, Alison. Thank you, Ellie. Um, so the latest book in your Six Tudor Queen series is Jane Seymour, The Haunted Queen, and it focuses on the life and the premature death of Henry VIII's third, third wife, Jane Seymour. That's correct. So I wonder whether you could tell us what makes Jane Seymour such an interesting character study. She's an enigma. She's intriguing. I always find enigmas you know, fascinating because it's very hard to define her character. And people have very polarised views about her. She see, um, Was she the meek and compliant uh, young tool of her ambitious family and of, of an ardent king? Or was she a scheming little conniver who plotted to bring down her predecessor, Anne Boleyn? So that's where you start with, with Jane Seymour. And it's I, I did a forensic examination of the sources to try to get all the pointers to her character. And it's that analysis that underpins the novel. It's quite a challenge. So you mentioned there um, a forensic analysis of the sources. I wonder what, if you could tell us some of the sources that you used and what conclusions you came to about Jane's character from looking at them. Well, there are letters um, letters and papers of the reign of Henry VIII is the major source for the reign. There are also the diplomatic calendars, uh, the reports of foreign ambassadors. There are one or two, there are letters uh, and there, there, are, there are contemporary observations about Jane. And then there are, are her actions themselves. So from all that, we can infer quite a lot. And we can infer that she was a person of some principle, actually, who, st- who had more, the moral courage to stand up for the things about which she really cared and that meant challenging Henry VIII on two occasions that and, and these were reported these occasions and on one she got a brutal put down she never interfered again could you tell us a bit about those two occasions? Yes. she, the, the king's daughter, the Lady Mary, who'd been Princess Mary, but had been declared a bastard when he declared her mother, he divorced her mother, Catherine of Aragon. Um, she had been banished from court. She'd sided with her mother. The king had forced her to sign this declaration that her mother's marriage had been incestuous and unlawful. And it broke her. I think she never got over it. Mary, of course, represented the old, you know, the old Catholic, Roman Catholic order at court. Uh, The king was, at this point, pushing through the Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, Jane also had served Catherine of Aragon. She was a, she was very staunchly Catholic. And she, she, she was fond of the Lady Mary, who she'd known when she was a child, and she stood up for her. And she she worked on Henry. She persuaded him to receive Mary back into his affections. And Henry did. And and I think Jane's influence was considerable in that. Later on, when Henry was dissolving the began dissolving the monasteries, Jane became aware that there was a, a groundswell of opinion, particularly in the Catholic North, against this. And she herself was, was, was grieved to see the monasteries being closed down. It was a whole way of life going. And she went on her knees before the king and begged him to spare them. And he, he told her to, you know, be, be quiet, basically, go away. The last queen died because she meddled too much in politics. Uh, Jane never protested again. Um, I think we quite often um, see Jane portrayed as, you know, a stock character, the passive, demure, um, perfect wife. Whereas what you were just telling me sounds like that wasn't necessarily true. Yes, 
Well, I think these these are two. That's a pointer to her moral courage. I think certainly she was involved with the faction who united at court to bring down her predecessor and her, her indeed her mistress Anne Boleyn. Uh, because we do know that she agreed to sort of drip feed um, criticism of Anne into the king's ear. But that that doesn't mean that she actually connived at Anne's, Anne's execution and Anne's arrest and execution. I think that came as a surprise to most of that faction because it was plotted by Thomas Cromwell himself separately from them. I think what Jane was aiming for was for the king to have his marriage to Anne annulled. And she wasn't the only one. Anne was very unpopular. A lot of different people who would normally not have been allies wanted to see Anne, Anne go. And so Jane, I think, would never have recognised Anne's marriage to Henry VIII. She was a supporter of Catherine of Aragon, a, a, a covert one, I might add. And she would not have recognised this marriage of Anne and the king. And so I think she would not have felt she needed to have a conscience about it. So what's your take on what motivated Jane? Was she interested in the power that becoming queen would have afforded her? Or did she in fact love Henry? Or were the decisions that took her to the throne possibly beyond her control? What, how do you see it? I think she was probably swept along, I think, because she she was a country knight's daughter. Her father had rendered some service to the crown, but he was based in Wiltshire and she'd grown up there. She was a part of a large family and she was a dutiful, obedient daughter. One betrothal had fallen through. Um, she was in getting into her late 20s. And I think the king's interest in her must have come as some something of a surprise. Uh, she was probably overawed by him because Henry at this stage is becoming the man we all know that you know Holbein's Henry he's he's you know he's 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 a very autocratic person and his word is law so I think she would have given her background and given that she was known to be quiet and gentle I think she would have gone along with this I think she would have felt she had no choice but but certainly she didn't become well I say certainly maybe she didn't become his mistress you mentioned earlier that Anne Boleyn was quite unpopular with many people. Yeah. How was Jane viewed uh, by her contemporaries and possibly by the public as well? I don't know if we have any um, sources on that. The public didn't really know her uh, before the king married her. Um, there was, as time went by, and those months went by. There was some talk uh, of, 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 you know, of, of what was going on. Certainly, people knew there was an affair between Jane and Henry. But after the marriage, uh, she seems to have been very, very popular, and indeed was much loved. But some of this evidence is in retrospect after she'd borne the king a son. So obviously, people are going to, you know, laud and applaud her. Something that fascinates me is is the question of how much is Jane's legacy um, and the way that we think of her even today shaped by the fact that she died prematurely, um, you know, and, and really her marriage to Henry was not actually that long. No, about 18 months. It wasn't very long at all. Of course, she gave the king a son and died 12 days later. Now, if that son had lived beyond the age of 15, he reigned for six years after Henry's death, um, then I think Jane's reputation would be greater. But because he died young, 
she and, and that he left no posterity. Um, that was it. She's just remembered as the wife who bore Henry a son. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what Henry was like at this time. You mentioned he's a Holbein Henry at this point, um, but give us a sense of his his mindset. He's a very frustrated, embittered man because he has been denied. I mean, he brought up he was he was not born to be heir to the throne, but once he did, he had very once he once his elder brother died and he did become heir. He had a very sheltered upbringing. He was probably a virgin when he married Catherine of Aragon, and he was let out, suddenly became king, um, had all these high ideals of chivalry and glory, and squandered the fortune his father had left him on, on you know, on, on courtly revelry and rather useless wars. Um, he, but he, he was denied the one thing that he really needed to ensure the, sec- the security of his kingdom and the continuance of his dynasty, and that was a male heir. Because it hadn't yet been shown that a woman could govern England as successfully as Elizabeth later did, his daughter. So his first two wives bore him only daughters. And it, it, it during his divorce, by, by 1523, he knew that his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, was not going to have any more children. And there he was with one daughter. Two years late, two or three years later, he is uh, he's fallen in love with Anne Boleyn. He wants an annulment. This is 1527. And the Pope is dithering, is withholding that annulment for political reasons. So Henry is becoming increasingly bitter and frustrated. He hasn't got a son. His dynasty is not secure. The kingdom might dissolve into civil war if he dies. And there's the Pope dithering and dithering, trying to placate Catherine's nephew, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, who doesn't want to see this annulment granted. And there's Anne Boleyn. He's desperate for Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn's holding him at arm's length. And he he indeed colludes in this because he can't risk the scandal of a pregnancy. So this is a man who's become very embittered. And by 1536, he is 45 years old, which is really getting on in those days. And he has no male heir. He's broken with Rome. He's pushed England through a revolution. And up to about two years before, I think if the Pope had backtracked, Henry would have backtracked too. So this is the man you're seeing. And this is the man who also has been a great sportsman and is slowing down because of a leg injury. And this is going to get worse as the years go by. In 1536, when he marries Jane, you're seeing the beginning of the decline. Because between 1536 and 1540, he gained 17 inches round the waist. So this is the Henry that Jane marries, irascible, with a bad temper, and yet oddly sentimental and increasingly sanctimonious. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The period in which um, Jane became queen, she, she was married to Henry only 11 days after Anne Boleyn's yes. execution, was very, very turbulent. I wonder whether yes. you could give us an idea of some of the stuff that was broiling at court at the time. We're talking about the year 1536, one of the pivotal years of Henry's reign. Uh, this is the year that sees, in the early months, Anne Boleyn's fall, her execution in May. This is the year that sees the launch of the dissolution of the monasteries. The, the Valor Ecclesiasticus, had been, the survey of the monasteries had been completed the year before, and it was decided to close down, at least to begin with, the smaller houses. This led to Jane's protest. There was plague that year in London, and both Jane and the king were horribly afraid of it, we are told. And then, towards the, in the autumn, a rebellion broke out against the religious changes and upheavals in the realm. And this was called the Pilgrimage of Grace, and it was quite a dangerous rebellion, threatening to the king. And it was a, it was a protest against the religious revolution that was taking place, the break with Rome that had happened two or three years previously, and the and and the closure of the monasteries and the pilgrims marched under the banner of the five wounds of Christ. It was suppressed with great ruthlessness. This rebellion, and uh, Jane was a witness to it. One of the leaders was brought to court for Christmas to, for Christmas that year, and she met him. So she is a witness to some of the most turbulent events of Henry's Henry's reign. And she would have been very aware, I guess, that she was she was going the position she was going into was was not really safe judging on the fates of her two predecessors i think so and that might be a clue to the title <laughs> a lot of people have said why the haunted queen but i mean if you became queen 11 days after the execution of your your predecessor and you married a king who with who only only 2 years before started to be to behead and and execute barbarously those who opposed him you might be a little, feel a little trepidation what was it about Jane, do we know, that appealed to Henry after his experience being married to Anne? I think she was the complete antithesis of Anne, and she was a gentle influence. Um, she, he could find some car, peace and calm with her. And we don't know much about the nature of the relationship. We got one letter from Henry, uh, the usual kind of letter written in the style of courtly love that prevailed then, much as he'd written letters to Anne Boleyn. Um, Certainly he loved her. He pursued her. And there's no, I mean, he seems to have made a joke shortly after they married that he'd twice seen, he'd seen two other ladies who he preferred. But whether we believe that, I don't know, because all the other evidence shows that, yes, he did love her. 
it wasn't a passion, doesn't seem to have been a passionate love such as he had for Anne, which endured for years. But of course, it happened rather, he was more secretive by this stage, and it happened over a much shorter time scale. And uh, so I, I do think he thought very, very highly of her. And the fact he heeded her in bringing his daughter back, you know, she, Jane was sort of the, the, the way that, you know, his means to finding an excuse for doing so. I think that shows that he thought quite highly of her and respected her. In the book, you explore the possibility that Jane may have possibly uh, been pregnant when she married Henry, Um, even though you acknowledge this is very controversial and not necessarily um, agreed upon. I just wondered whether you could lay out both sides of the case for us and why you decided to explore that possibility. There are a few pointers in the evidence, like the king's very soon talking about the prince who's expected in due season, and it's and and there there are there are pointers that she possibly was pregnant. There is a long gap between her marriage and her and her the time she conceived Edward the Sixth, and we do have a report of her being pregnant in probably in October of 1536. She didn't bear Edward till October 1537. That, that there's better evidence for the October 1536 pregnancy than there is for the theory built on a multitude of fragments of evidence that she might have been when she married the king. For dramatic purposes, I've used it here. But there is a report in Rome from the imperial ambassador in Rome that she was five months gone with child when she married Henry. And there's also a report, a slander that's reported in the state papers here that's around the time of her marriage that said she was made sure unto the king six months before. Made sure unto meant they'd slept together. And Anne Boleyn was very, very wary of Jane very wary indeed. And we have a source that says there are lots of scratchings and by-blows between the Queen and her maid. I don't think Jane was doing the scratching or the blows. Um, it was a Queen's privilege to to physically chastise her maids of honour, uh, that she was there in loco parentis. And um, so I think Anne would have taken advantage of this. It's more in keeping with Anne's character than what we know of Jane's. There's been a lot of debate over the cause of Jane's death. Um, you consulted um, various different medical experts. And I. what conclusions did you come to from that? There's been some discussion about it, but most people have gone down the traditional route that she died of puerperal fever. But there was something odd about the chronology of the sources. And I took them apart and listed all the evidence in a chronological line and found out that she bore Edward on the Friday. She didn't become ill until the Tuesday. And then she suffered what's called unnatural lax. Now, a lax then, the word laxative will give it to you. It's diarrhoea. It's a stomach upset. And it seems to have been pretty severe, but she quickly recovered from it. She was a bit up and down for a day or so. And then she seems to have been fine for at least a couple of days. It was only on the following weekend that she started to become ill again. There is no mention of fever in the sources, uh, only this natural lax and a report afterwards that uh, her death was the cause of those that were around her who suffered her to take great cold and gave her foods that were unsuitable for her. So we've got just, this is the evidence we've got basically and, and the timescale of her decline. And I thought this doesn't sound like puerperal fever. There's no mention of fever. There's this natural lax, which some scholars have taken to mean heavy, uh, uh, heavy bleeding, but doesn't mean that. So, and I think, what's this about taking cold and eating unsuitable foods? Well, you could think eating unsuitable foods would have caused the diarrhea. We don't know what the foods were, and because she's the queen, she's going to be indulged. 
So I, I asked, I went on Facebook, actually, and I said, I got a new theory about Jane's death. Did anyone know any doctors out there? And I run historical tours. And one of the tour guests is a, is a, is a long term critical care and emergency room nurse in America. And she came back to me and she said, yes, I'm going to put this before. I've got a theory of my own and I'm going to put this before three doctors I know at the hospital. And she kindly did. I also have a historian friend, Nicola Tallis, whose mother is a very experienced midwife. And so I was able to get information from her as well. On the evidence we have, particularly the, 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 the cold, the, you know, the taking cold, it sounds as if she possibly died of a pulmonary embolism or at least or pieces of it breaking away. She's quite young, you see. She's about 29. Her heart would have taken longer to give out. You don't just die of a instantly of a pulmonary embolism. It can happen over several days. And the long and so the consensus of opinion was that this was the likeliest scenario. Um Mothers in those days were kept lying down. Their lying in was their lying in after childbirth. And in some cases, a woman's upsitting would not happen for about a fortnight after birth. You'd be lying flat, basically, which and you can imagine there's a there's another reason, not just childbirth itself. There's another reason why women died in childbed, because they, they didn't understand the risks of clots. So if she'd been lying flat, then she'd suffered diarrhea. Maybe she'd had to get up and rush the clothes stool. If an embolism had been forming, bits of it might have broken off. All sorts of theories were considered, but this was the one that, you know, that, that, that drew the greatest consensus. And we can't say for definite, of course we can't, but this, the evidence strongly suggests that this was the cause of her death. And the, the, the long-term critical careness was very, very helpful because she had seen over a period of 20 years, she had seen quite a few people die in this way. She described for me the kind of course the symptoms were taken and that's being used for the book. Do we know anything about how Henry reacted to Jane's death? He was in great sorrow. And we have an urgent message from the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Cromwell, summoning him down to Hampton Court and saying, you know, come to it, you know, our master is in great heaviness. And as for our mistress, there is no hope of her life. So Henry is, is, is in a desperate state. He's by her bedside. This is a man who has a great fear of illness and death and distances himself from it as often as he can. It's almost pathological, this fear in Henry, but the fact he stayed beside her for a long, long time towards the end. And then when she had died, he took himself off to Windsor, shut himself away and would not see anyone. And it took a while, even his ministers, and it took a while for them to actually, you know, him to actually agree to see them and start to take up the reins of normal life again. But I should add that within a month he was, and these are the words, framing his mind reluctantly to think about a fourth marriage. How do you think that we should look back on Jane Seymour now, having had a full um, re-evaluation of the sources? I think we should look back on her as not just the, the, the you know, the, either the sly little minx or the, or the, you know, the pasty-faced, you know, little yes girl. I think that we need to see her as a more rounded personality who was more proactive than she's been made out and not quite the bitch that, you know, some of Anne Boleyn's supporters would see her as. Your book series has been incredibly popular. Why do you think that people continue to be so fascinated by the story of Henry VIII and his six wives? 
Well, you couldn't make it up, could you? Because it's so dramatic, and it's—I mean, it's this is this is this is history that works as incredible drama and fiction. It's a king who's married six wives, and he's divorced three of them, beheaded two. So there's a, a hell of a lot of human interest here, and also this great long pursuit. The fact he he instigated a religious revolution to marry Anne Boleyn, um, and carried it through, and you see his character change. He be, he's this larger than life, vital. A fascinating, terrifying character. And I think this fascination just endures. And also the thing is, we have, there are, there are gaps in our knowledge. There is so much speculation, so much room for debate. And this goes on and on. And people are doing research all the time. And it's amazing. You still come up, you can come up occasionally with something new. I've come up with something new for every book in this series and I didn't expect to. In your author's note, you mentioned that you explore certain possibilities in this novel, such as the possibility that Jane may have been pregnant when she married, that you wouldn't necessarily confirm as a historian. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you see the role of a historical novelist as being and how that might differ from if you were writing straight history. Well, if you're writing straight history, obviously you have to go with what the, what the sources are telling you and what you can credibly infer, and you have to be cautious. You can't just make things up or go into flights of fancy. And I don't think you can do that really with a historical novel. You, you, you do have a scope to make something up. You have to. But you are writing about real people. And I think for the novel to have integrity, you must do your best to represent them as authentically as possible. So I have a historical story that underpins the all the, all the historical record is actually sort of what I start with. And then I fictionalize it as I go through. So I know I've got the evidence in front of me that I, and I do a lot of research. I've done a lot of extra research for these novels. Um, so it's important, I think, to keep the sources. And the role of the historical novelist is to make history live. I think, and to make it accessible, what you invent must be credible in the context of what is known. In a historical novel, you can explore what if. But if you do that, I think you have to have a, a very long author's note at the end, as I've included here. That was Alison Weir. Jane Seymour, The Haunted Queen, part of the Six Tudor Queens series, is out now, published by Headline Review. And you can read a version of this interview in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with the Black Death on the cover. Now before we go, here's a reminder that tickets for this year's History Weekend events are now on sale, taking place in Winchester on the 5th to 7th of October and York from the 19th to 21st of October. The lineups include some of Britain's best-known historians, authors and broadcasters. Head to historyweekend.com now for more details and to book tickets. OK, well, that's about it for today's episode, but we'll be back on Tuesday, as Monday is a bank holiday, when we'll be talking to Afua Hirsch about whether we need to rethink Britain's heroes. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.